Hey everyone, and welcome to the Forefront Podcast. We are a community of pioneers exploring and building at the forefront of the Web3 playground. We've dug through the noise and surfaced a signal on the state of the art of tokenized communities in the internet native economy. Enjoy this bi-weekly roundup of the latest and greatest in social tokens, DAOs, and more. Hey, Forefront fam, it's Caroline. And before we hop into the roundup, I wanted to tell you about a very special initiative going on in the Forefront community. In the last roundup episode, Alex and I were jamming on how to find perspective and balance amidst the chaos of the markets and the world right now. We've got to remember why we're here. We're here to imagine. We're here to create together. Forefront is about to launch the Web3 Creator Residency. This is gonna be six creators and eight weeks of building and learning in public with the community along for the ride. That's you. Last week, we selected 16 finalists out of nearly 100 incredible applications. And next week, we're gonna hold meet and greets with each of the 16 finalists. We hope you'll join us. Remember, my friends, builders build, creators create. There's a new world on the horizon. This is the signal. The rest is noise. Now let's get to the roundup. How's it going, Forefront fam? This is Alex. Now is the new host of the podcast. I have successfully performed a coup and taken over for Caroline's spot as host here. Now Caroline's just taking a much well-deserved break for this week. So I actually have a guest co-host joining us here, Julia, who's also a part of Forefront. How's it going, Julia? Hi, Alex. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here co-hosting today. Love it. So you've been with Forefront for just a few weeks now, haven't you, right? Yeah, this is my fifth week, so just over a month, and it's been a really exciting journey. Uh, I contribute to the Media Guilds, where I help Jihad with a lot of Forefront Journal-related tasks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's really good to have you on this. And we are going to take advantage of your unique perspective as being a relatively new member of Forefront. Part of our philosophy bombshell section is going to be a lot about member experience, which I know has been a a struggle and challenge for a lot of DAOs for months and months now. So it'll be really nice to have your unique perspective and cover your own journey and then do a little bit of a deep dive on thinking about member experience with DAOs and protocols in parallel to something like user experience, which we're all familiar with. So we'll get to that in the end here, but I'll go ahead and jump into the first topic here, going straight into the DAO section. Nothing on social tokens this week. Got a lot of interesting news that I want to make sure that we get to. So we skip that section, but going straight into DAOs, more of a concept here talking about DAO leadership. So this is a topic that we covered in the past And a lot more on this podcast, we're talking about kind of adjacent topics that are relevant to Web3, but might not be exclusive to Web3. And leadership is obviously something that's been around as long as civilization has been around. But how do we think about leadership in a different way than the kind of traditional leadership that we're all familiar with, that you have servant leaders, you have Gandhi, Jesus Christ, great examples. Then you have the kind of these visionary leaders like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. Like these are the kind of quintessential leaders that we're all familiar with. And it's antithetical really to the way that DAOs operate. They're a little bit more decentralized. There's less of that central vision coming from a single person. And the value and direction of the company in that case really being dictated by that one person. The DAO is more of this spread out kind of leadership. So wanted to talk a little bit more about what leadership looks like in DAOs, 
and and how to design that kind of culture at your own DAOs because it can be very easy to slip back into things that we're more familiar with, not necessarily because they're a better way, but because they're the familiar way. So let's talk a little bit more about this type of unique structure. So in the traditional structure, the value of the company is closer to the sum of its parts in that way that you have certain leaders there, the contributions that they're bringing there. The company is only really as valuable as the people who are a part of it. Where I think what's different about the DAO space is the the value of the DAO really stems more than just the sum of its parts. You have these kind of systems and processes put in place. It's less over-reliant on any individual one person. And because that leadership is decentralized, it de-risks the company being really fragile, where if you lose one person, someone leaves or something happens to them or whatever, the, the DAO is a little bit more secure than it would be in a, a company structure where the people are really the ones dictating the direction of the company and the value is really dug into the people who are running that company. So the idea here, the goal should be for DAOs to be running them in a way where how can this thing exist even after all of the core team, all of the people who are currently involved in the DAO leave? How can we still make it so that it runs more effectively? So think of more of traditional social constructs like the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, things like that. Those are more principles set in place that as new people come through, you can introduce new people who follow those guidelines and follow the operating system, and it runs like clockwork. And obviously, that's a different example because those get, that gets changed over time, and we're very we're at a very different place than we were back then. But the general idea is that we should be guiding DAOs more to operate in that way, where there's a kind of guiding principles that can be followed, and the individual people who are involved in it matters way less, and it it creates a more anti fragile type of organization. So this this paper is a we'll post it in the show notes, but it's a TLDR on a larger, more deep dive paper that was done on DAO leadership by. Mr. Nobody. And I'll post the link to the concise one. It has a link to the longer article in here, but I'll do a little bit dive, uh, a deeper dive into this right now, or at least give, give an overview today. So I, I talked about a little bit about the difference between the different structures there, but why are DAOs uniquely positioned for this type of decentralized, more less centralized, I would say, governance structure? In my opinion, people rise to the responsibility they're given but if they have no vested interest in the outcome, they are way less likely to be successful. And I think this is a big difference here with the DAO space in that every single member is also an owner in that organization, in DAOs, whether they're uh, a passive observer or all the way up to the core team. Everyone shares ownership and immediate liquidity in the success of the DAO. And I think that introduction of the financial incentive can drive so much of the ownership that people need to feel in order to be a good leader here. So instead of relegating it to a small core team of people who are running a company in the traditional sense, you now have a group of core members, yes, but then also the community who are also seen as leaders themselves. And I think a really good example that's been a huge success, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this, is something called Knowles, N-O-L-S. And it's this program that's been around for a while. And the whole concept here is they take you out into the wilderness. You have certain guides. And over a period of 30, 60, 90 days, there's different lengths there. The guides will slowly teach the people in the group how it is to survive in the wild, how to thrive. And then they will gradually step back 
and take less and less responsibility and give more and more responsibility to the group, to the participants. And at a certain point in that trip, they actually assign a different person in the group as the leader for the day. And it's that person's responsibility to say, you need to guide the group. You need to to say which direction you're going to go in, where you're going to set up camp, what food you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, all of this type of stuff. You are now the leader for the day. (laughs) So it's a really interesting concept. And it's that you're a participant and at some point you are going to be the leader. So not only is everyone observing everyone else's leadership styles, seeing what works, thinking how they might lead themselves. But when it comes time for them to lead, the whole group is their responsibility. And there's that kind of shared ownership when they're going through the wilderness and that I have all of these people who I am responsible for. And my success is their success and vice versa. So it creates this very interesting dynamic that the survival and thriving of the group is on that person's shoulders, regardless of their credentials, regardless of their experience. Pretty much everyone is put on that same playing field in terms of responsibility. And it works really well. And that is really the way that DAOs are starting to operate here, where everyone is on a much more even ground and that leadership isn't this kind of top-down, centralized, charismatic, visionary type of leadership style. It's more of that everyone has their own unique expertise within the group. They specialize in different things. And when different needs pop up, there might be one person who's better fit to lead on that particular project or initiative or whatever than the traditional leader who might just, in a traditional organization, might just be in charge of that project because of their title, because of their position, not because of their expertise or it's really set in stone and it's a little bit more rigid in the leadership style versus selecting a leader every time a new need comes up and saying, who is the, who's best equipped to actually lead us for this particular initiative? So taking an example from Knowles, I'll put a list to that. I've even thought of doing something like that myself. <laughs> like It looks really cool, really interesting. And taking leadership into an environment that we're not really accustomed to seeing. We see it a lot in the tech space. And when you give a, an even ground there, which I think is really the DAO space right now, it's pretty even right now where everyone's at and their expertise when it comes to DAO specific stuff. Now we have a chance to say, if a DAO is going after a certain initiative, let's leverage all the different people in the DAO, whether they're core members or community or just owner and seeing who wants to take on that responsibility. They have the shared ownership and they might be more uniquely positioned to lead in that particular project. There's so much more that they go into in this. It really comes down to, what it really boils down to here is projecting leadership as a skill rather than a pure talent. That at the end of the day comes down to, do you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset? And we talked about this concept a little bit on the last podcast too about behavioralist psychology, B.F. Skinner being the founder of this idea where in his opinion, the vast majority of the traits in human beings really come from learned experiences rather than specific traits, like things that you're born with. And the research really supports this. So just like anything else, it's a skill. Leadership is a skill. This is not necessarily something where people are just born with it. Some people might be relatively better suited for leadership off the bat, but at the end of the day, this is a skill. This can be learned. Public speaking is another great example. A lot of people think, oh, this person was born for public speaking. They're really great at it. They're really confident, whatever. Susan Cain, who's the author of Quiet, is a perfect example of this where she was self-admittedly like just abysmal at public speaking. And she just kept working at it, kept working at it, kept working at it. She does all these different TED Talks. She speaks all over the world. 
And she developed that skill. Leadership is the exact same way where if we start to look at leadership where it's everyone has this capacity to lead, everyone might have different styles, everyone might have different strengths and weaknesses as a start, but if we give everyone the opportunity to lead, we give them shared ownership in the success of their leadership, you align those incentives now where people are going to develop that skill, they're going to want to lead, they're going to want to do a good job when they lead, and Everyone's going to build up that skill and we're going to have a lot more people who are capable of leading within an organization than in these traditional structures because we're giving people that platform and that shared ownership that is required for developing different leaders and ultimately getting different outcomes in a DAO than you would something like a traditional company where you have the same leaders in the same positions running all the different projects they might not be best suited to run. So it does a further breakdown and leading the self, leading people, leading tasks, leading change, all the different nuances there. Again, it, they do a huge deep dive, but wanted to give this high level overview because again, while not Web3 specific, we do have new technology that allows us to try these different governance styles. And the idea of having basically a community of leaders rather than a core set team of leaders who do pretty much everything and dictate what everyone else is doing. We're at this time now to try this different structure and it's worked in different types of environments. So let's leverage it with the technology that we have now. Good way to start thinking about ways to run DAOs and not fall into that trap of just doing things the way we've always done them in the traditional structure. Julia, I don't know if you have any comments or concerns or anything like that on this particular topic. Yeah, so I think I thank you so much for that overview, Alex. And I think one thing that I've loved about my experience in DAO so far is how, because of the shared ownership that you described, leadership is in the DAOs that I've been in has been described as stepping up necessarily for yourself or for your own career goals or strictly for those goals, but as a way of giving back to the community. There's this much more emphasis on that collective responsibility that I think arises because everyone has skin in the game because of this shared ownership. And I think that in thinking about how we want to develop these models further, it's important to remember that tech workers and startups did not necessarily invent these new types of decentralized, self-sufficient, non-hierarchical structures. Other communities, especially indigenous communities around the world, such as the Zapatistas, have already been implementing ideas that these kinds of structures come from social ecology and mutual aid in their communities for a while. We just have the new technologies through crypto and blockchain that make it possible to organize with these methodologies at a scale that's been unprecedented in history. And it's cool to see some writing within the space begin to acknowledge this as well, such as the Pluriverse artifact from Versus, which is based on the idea of a world where many worlds fit that is taken from Zapatista philosophy. And I think that going forward, it's important to acknowledge this history so we can learn from those past mistakes in organizing and also past things that have gone well that can serve as case studies of leadership in non-hierarchical organizations that can challenge our existing definitions of what a leader should be. I love that. And uh, this really hits on the point that we've talked about many times in the past. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but this is why it's so important to study other topics outside of Web3, especially at this point. We have so many people in this space that understand the technology so well, are, are technologists first, and we are always going to need those people. We're going to need I was going to say Vitalik, but he's super well-read in lots of different areas too. So it, maybe not the best example, but you'll have these people who are 
so intimately aware of all the different trends coming up in the space. They understand the technology, the implications there. And what you end up designing is a protocol or a dApp that only really works for other technologists. And this is a pitfall. And we'll get into this more when we get into the user experience and member experience at the end here. How do we think about this differently? But again, another great example of why it's important to read on different topics, because while Web3 is a revolutionary way to coordinate, again, we're all human beings at the end of the day. We're all the same human beings that we've been for tens of thousands of years. We all have the same incentive structures. We all think pretty much the same way, like our brains operate the same way for the most part. Evolution hasn't had much of a chance to act in the past couple 10,000 years. And it's best to understand how human beings work, how the environment works, how we interact with our environment so that we can design these systems to be aligned with the way humans are incentivized, with the way our brains work. This is a perfect example where, again, this is not a new idea here, this idea of the more decentralized way of leadership. This has been tried before. We just have new technology to, as you said, scale this at an unprecedented level. Great way to think about this. Another, I would say, tally in the column of please read wide rather than just deep. We all spend enough time on Twitter and even especially in bear markets, it can be depressing as hell to spend all the time on Twitter. So take some of that Twitter time you'd normally have, read on some other topic that you find interest in, and start to think of the parallels between the, the work that you're doing and what you're building in the Web3 space. So awesome. Really, really good point, Julia. I'll move into the next topic. This is really cool. So PrimeDAO just released a platform called Prime Deals, and it's a platform to help facilitate more DAO-to-DAO interaction. So I'm going to read this very short announcement thread here that they have. Right now, the time has arrived for the next stage of DAO-to-DAO coordination. Prime Deals is now live. Prime Deals is a platform where DAOs can easily propose, discuss, ratify agreements, and execute the deal on-chain, complete token swaps. And they, they have a link here, and I'm going to go through it a little bit and just talk through what it is that I'm seeing. I got a chance to go through this a little bit beforehand. We'll put a link to this post, this announcement in the show notes. You'll immediately see the value here when you play around with it. Really well designed. Such a huge need. So I'll keep reading here. DAOs can now address their growing pains by exchanging and trading with each other, co-funding initiatives that drive mutual prosperity according to their respective comparative advantage, all in a single interface. With Prime Deals, DAOs will have a seamless way of coordinating with other aligned DAOs on shared infrastructure, features, and initiatives. Any DAO that can issue external transaction calls can use Prime's DAO-to-DAO mechanism. It doesn't matter if you're running a Gnosisafe, DAOhouse, DAOstack, any governance framework can work. On top of that, all parties can recover any funding issued for a D2D collaboration when all conditions are not satisfied. In addition, proposal leads will earn a percentage of the total swap amount, enabling a win-win situation for all parties and a link to the actual platform itself. I know the general topic of DAO infrastructure and DAO tooling is overblown, but I think a lot of us are on the same page at this point on the importance of DAO to DAO. DAO to DAO is what could be what gets a lot of DAOs through the bear market. And we talked about this topic before, looking at DAOs as mycelial networks, this interconnected web between different DAOs rather than having these different silos. And it's more DAO to DAO rather than DAO versus DAO. The the company versus company is a way more traditional structure. Let's look at this positive sum game. Let's look at this ecosystem as 
just that, like an ecosystem that all has interconnected parts. And if some part of the ecosystem dies, those resources are reabsorbed and reallocated wherever they're needed. They can regrow that part of the ecosystem. It makes the entire system way more anti-fragile than having all these different siloed entities that have no interconnectedness with anything around it. And if that dies, there's nothing really to revive it or nothing really to keep it from dying in the first place. Let's dig into this platform a little bit and see how this could help facilitate that DAO to DAO and help get a lot of these DAOs through the bear market by doing token swaps at the very simplest level. So I'm on the website right now. You have a chance to view all of the deals that are going on, all of the public deals really, and see who is doing what. So what's awesome about this is you can actually fork the templates for your own deal. So if you see a proposal for a token swap between, let's take for example here, th there are a few proposals on here already between PrimeDAO and OlympusDAO, PrimeDAO and Celo, PrimeDAO and Bankless, kind of these featured ones. And I could look at one of these and say, oh, this looks fantastic. There's a token swap going here. I'm seeing all the fine prints. I might want to make a few changes in here, but I'm going to fork this essentially, make whatever changes that I can. And then I'm going to propose this for myself such a clean interface. I love it. This is the general use case for this. And all a lot of these platforms that we've talked about here, platforms, protocols, they're keeping it to a point where this is the initial use case. Let's see where this takes us. And they're listening to the community to, to take it in lots of different directions. So it looks super, super promising. And again, it's such an important time right now to be focusing on DAO to DAO because the survival of your own DAO could be directly related to the connections it has with other DAOs, whether that's token swaps or something a little bit a little bit different. You can get a lot more creative with what does that relationship look like here to make us a little bit more anti-fragile and then stronger when things are good. I think that one interesting add-on is how this changes how we as a space deal with competition and view competition. Because as you said, we need to unlearn those types of mentalities, Web2, if we want mm -hmm. to develop as a space and grow together. And this definitely this new like product does a great job of providing the incentives and tooling for people to create those positive sum games that help us move yes. on from the way that we previously considered competition. So incentivizing us to learn from each other's strengths and mistakes instead of viewing it as this competitive zero-sum game. And one other thing is that there's a lot more lower barriers of working DAO to DAO than company to company. There's a lot less legal restrictions and paperwork and a lot more focus on community co cooperation and community like organization within the community and buy-in. And I think that this kind of idea of potentially using these types of tools to do things like share treasuries, mm -hmm. where that kind of enables people to now create a web of value where people are thinking in more positive some ways can be really great for the future of the space. This seems to be the theme with the last two topics we brought up here is, is positive sum. And th this Web3 technology really enables more positive sum thinking, where in the past, you've had to rely on people foregoing self-interest in order to think about the community. And again, another thing that we brought up in a previous episode where you're almost flattening the hierarchy where self-interest is now directly correlated to community interest. For the first time, this is what this technology enables, where you can say, in order to best benefit myself, I need to focus on the community because that is the best path to bettering myself. And if you look at it, the DAO to DAO, 
you're not just as a DAO saying, how can we as a DAO improve? You're looking at your treasury now in the token swap example and saying, how can I improve this ecosystem? And you're thinking larger. You're thinking more the way we should. And if everyone's trying to improve the entire ecosystem rather than just trying to improve themselves, you can improve the ecosystem leaps and bounds more. You're getting people to think about the bigger picture rather than having their head in the sand and saying, how can we improve ourselves? In the traditional competitive environment, like you just mentioned, a lot of these people can be focusing on the same problem simultaneously and trying to figure out solutions to those problems independently because they're competing with each other. Where now you look at the DAO to DAO space, let's take onboarding for an example. Another huge struggle in the DAO space, especially as the people getting onboarded to DAO is that demographic changes, their needs change. How do we all, as DAOs, solve this problem together? Because if you solve the problem together, you're putting your heads together, you're going to come up with a better solution. You're making the invisible visible by saying everything that we're trying to do is now open sourced. And you financially, in a self-interested way, you benefit because if you're putting your heads together with all these other DAOs that you share treasure, then if they're solving the problem better, then your own treasury increases in value as the DAO becomes more successful, onboards more members, and can be more effective at whatever projects they're working towards. This is the way, this is what this technology enables is this positive sum game. How can we win rather than how can I win? And the more we can come up with ways, and I know here's the thing right now, you still have these hacks happening where people are thinking in the very old school way, like how do I enrich myself? Very zero sum way of in order for me to win, I have to take from other people. And the idea here is how do we continually design these protocols in a way that makes, in a game theoretics standpoint, how do we make the Nash equilibrium, the thing that is everyone is naturally going to gravitate towards, that shelling point, how, how can we make that the focus on the community, the focus on a positive sum game? And it's just going to take time in the way that we develop protocols, the way we develop our DAO ecosystems, the way each individual DAO operates to say, the most advantageous way to get ahead is by focusing on the betterment of the DAO ecosystem, of this protocol, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes more work to get there. And we actually have another example coming up here soon on how a protocol leveraged their community in a positive some way to be self-interested, but also benefit the protocol overall. But before we get to that, I want to hand it over to you, Julia. We have That's pretty much it for, we have for the, the DAO and social token segments. We have a ton of awesome buzzworthy news here that I want to make sure that we can get to. So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, excited to dive into this. So on the Forefront podcast before, a common theme has been how other Web2 companies are getting into Web3. And this week, we wanted to shout out two notable examples that could potentially help onboard thousands of new users if they're executed right. So the first one is Instagram um, announcing that it would be embracing NFTs. So Adam Masseri announced on Twitter that Instagram would, quote, be beginning to test digital collectibles with a handful of U.S. creators and collectors who will be able to share NFTs on Instagram. And he also mentioned that there will be no fees associated with posting or sharing a digital collectible on Instagram. And in the announcement, he also mentioned that their decision was based on the importance of the creator economy to Instagram's product and that NFTs are a promising new way to help creators monetize. However, he also mentioned that the biggest challenge would be the fact that NFTs would introduce an element of decentralization to Instagram, which in every other respect is a centralized platform. And he didn't announce a clear roadmap for dealing with this tension just yet, 
saying that the team would start small with an initial test group of creators and then listen to the community as they refine this feature further. So unpacking this, what's different about this from other kind of Web2 company embraces NFTs examples is that it doesn't appear that Instagram will be selling their own NFTs like Time Magazine or Playboy. What they're doing instead is making it easier for collectors and artists to share their NFTs and verify that unique ownership. And this could be really good for making it easier to share and prove ownership on a platform with a ton of eyes and introduce this technology to a lot more new people. And I think that it's worth mentioning that Instagram also isn't even the first Web2 social media platform to experiment with NFTs. Twitter added that NFT integration a while ago for Twitter Blue subscribers that enabled people to make their profile picture into an NFT. And as NFT adoption increases and there's an increased demand among people to make digital collectibles a more prominent part of their identity, it kind of makes sense for Instagram to provide more ways for people to display them on their profiles. However, there are a couple of problems that I see with this. Whether or not this will lead to increasingly meaningful relationships between creators and fans is still an open question and really dependent on how Instagram markets and implements this feature. For example, when looking at Twitter's NFT integration, one of the main backlashes argued that it was essentially another mode of conspicuous consumption for the crypto rich. And given the extent to which Instagram has also become synonymous with this toxic influencer culture a la the Kardashians, it's not impossible to imagine how an Instagram NFT integration could move in a similar direction and face similar backlash. And also another kind of related note is how the increased reach that this will cause NFTs to have among retail investors and those brand new to crypto, especially among kids and teenagers who are a really big part of Instagram. The platform is taking on a lot of responsibility to protect people from potentially predatory NFT implementations from influencers. And as the recent congressional hearings about Instagram's significant negative effects on the mental health of teenagers show, Instagram doesn't exactly have the best track record of internal or external accountability when it comes to regulating the effects of that culture. So without a fundamental change in the way that it approaches these problems, NFTs on Instagram might potentially exacerbate them and make uh, them a lot worse. But on the flip side, returning to the potential positives, if the implementation and marketing of this feature stays true to the goal of giving creators new ways to monetize and is approached more from potentially a fan engagement perspective, it could provide a more sustainable route to monetization for creators who are currently only limited to ads and brand sponsorships, potentially allowing for a little bit more creative freedom. And honestly, in the beginning, there probably will be a combination of both. Adam mentioned in his announcement, it will probably be up to the community and the way that the feature is marketed and explained by Instagram going forward. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with this one. I I have reservations as well, and I hate to just make it seem like it's a bias towards Web2 company tries Web3, and then I'm automatically skeptical. But like you said, they just don't have the best track record of having the best interests of their community in mind. They really deliver what's going to be more addictive, what's going to keep them more on the platform, and not necessarily what's going to be best for them in the long run. And human beings don't have a great track record of always choosing the things that are best for them in the long run. They're going to consume the the low-hanging fruit, the high dopamine activity, and I, I just wonder because at face value, like you said, it doesn't, they're not selling their own NFTs. It doesn't seem, I'm trying to see what potential angle there could be to just monetizing this further other than 
which which might be okay, is just saying, how can we keep our platform relevant and where is the market going? And they might be seeing that go, they might be seeing the market go in the direction of, okay, people are really adopting crypto, they're adopting NFTs explicitly. And with Instagram being a very visual platform, I wouldn't be surprised if they lean more in that direction. But you're totally right in the risk that they're taking on here. And the track record that they have of not necessarily really taking seriously the risk that they have to other people's mental health. Now you're introducing this whole other layer of you could have influencers here giving just terrible advice that anyone who's been in the crypto space could see from a mile away. But yet for someone new to the space, which is exactly going to be the vast majority of the audience now, because Instagram is going to be a huge on-ramp, whether it's for better or for worse, there's going to be a lot of eyes on this. And you could have these influencers for clicks just trying to do things like there's that video floating around about Anchor Protocol, which funny enough, I saw when it first came out and I was like, that that's a terrible idea. And then after the whole Luna crash ends up just becoming a meme where this influencer is basically saying, I'm going to take out this massive loan. I'm going to put it in Anchor at 20% per year, assuming that's going to be indefinite returns. And I'm just going to pay off my mortgage for this multi-million dollar house using all the funds that I put into the Anchor Protocol. And you just shudder to think not only how he's doing, but everyone else who followed in his lead, how they're doing. And you you have this kind of cliche of not financial advice, but at the end of the day, people are impressionable. People want to get rich quick. And now you have this culture, this audience on Instagram that's all about glamour and fashion and, and clout and everything. And you have all these people flashing these easy ways to get rich and people don't really understand that the true risk that they're taking on man, this could be an absolute bomb. It could totally fail. And we don't want to sit back in this space and hope for when Instagram is going down this route, we could sit there and scoff and be like, they're going to fail and we want them to fail. But the reality is these are the types of on-ramps that introduce the next wave of people to the space. And if you give a bad taste in their mouth, they get burned really bad off the bat. They're not only going to not want to participate, but they're going to be dogmatically against the entire space, whether they're right or wrong. And they're going to look for any reason to not want to join the space and to deter other people from joining the space. So we have to be careful when platforms, traditional platforms like Instagram start to enter the space because they could dictate how quickly the next wave of people come on and how difficult it is to adopt the next wave of people to true Web3 native type of dApps versus whatever potential bastardized version they might come up with themselves. So I know that's a little bit more of a negative spin, but... We have to be careful and we have to we have to guide traditional companies like that and root for the success because it could bring a ton of people into the space, but it could also be a huge bomb and a huge deterrent to getting that next wave of people into true native Web3 space. Adding on to that, I hope personally that Instagram does rise up to the challenge and recognize the risk that they're taking on. And then their community team acknowledges that and does a lot more to prevent this type of thing from happening. But I think ultimately it is on the platform right now that burden will probably fall to the community, the community to kind of like educate itself and point out these more people who are more crypto native, taking up the mantle to point out these more suspicious implementations of NFTs if they 
do arise from influencers and taking on a lot of education accounts exist on Instagram right now. And I imagine a similar vein could pop up where people who are crypto native take on the responsibility of producing educational content that's designed for the platform on what decentralization really means, the additional responsibility that you take up by having an ownership stake in a digital collectible or in a community that's more decentralized. And I'm curious to see how this will play out in that whole centralized Instagram being a centralized platform while introducing this kind of wild card of decentralization into its midst. So this kind of like also ties into another major Web2 company that, not Web2, but traditional company that introduced a crypto feature this week, GameStop, which recently announced that it is introducing a self-custodial Ethereum wallet, which will be using Loopring uh, Layer 2 to try to keep transaction costs low for players. And it seems optimized for sending and receiving NFTs based on the product marketing that is available for this beta so far. And this kind of makes sense because for NFTs, utility in the rising subculture of GameFi is a little bit more straightforward than other NFT use cases and closer to the kinds of things that players are already used to doing in video games. So for example, many popular esports games have already monetized by having players passes for each season. So making the leap into minting those passes as an NFT isn't as wide as it is for other kinds of NFTs. And the same goes for other common behaviors, collecting skins or weapons, which can also be minted as NFTs. But the problem that arises in a similar vein to Instagram is if GameStop is ready for the inevitable backlash and objections that will come with this. So the gaming industry and players are no stranger to predatory financialization. And while NFTs do have the potential to make this better if implemented correctly and in a way that is easy to understand for those who aren't crypto native, so it doesn't take away from the game experience, in the gaming industry, uh, a debate about NFTs is still heated because of the idea that such explicit financialization in games, such as introducing decentralized exchanges and things as more into the back end of new games, can lead to developers sacrificing the player experience in return for such financialization. And navigating these conversations will take a lot of nuance and engagement with the player community. And similar to Instagram, GameStop also does have a much younger, more impressionable audience that might not truly understand the risks of this new technology. So they'll also have to take on that burden of responsibility for explaining this new technology to parents who might like have children who engage with NFTs in games as GameFi becomes more prominent. And they'll have to do so in a way responsible and ensures that the risk of this kind of causing a lot of financial damage for those who are cri- mm-hmm. not crypto native uh, is mitigated. Yeah, something I just thought of is the name GameStop, which by the way, is just incredible comeback story, right? They're on the brink of death and the whole memeing it back into existence by <laughs> taking opposite positions from the big shorts from the hedge funds and all that. And now they're getting into the Web3 space. Like, bravo, first of all, for revitalizing the name. The thing is, though, the GameStop name really resonates with an older generation of gamers because it, re- it was a brick and mortar store. That's where people bought most of their games. But a lot of the new gamers who are coming up the, the GameStops are now replaced with things like Epic Games and Steam and Origin, maybe not so much, Origin sucks, but the, the idea is they kind of these digital stores that people are way more akin to interacting with rather than GameStop. 
And so the challenge that I think GameStop is going to have is at least anecdotally, when I'm finding in the gaming community, I'm in it somewhat, a lot of the older gamers are just not at all sold on the NFT space right now. It's a few reasons going on, especially in the PC gaming world. You have a lot of people who are bitter because miners have bought up a lot of the graphics cards and shorted the supply and drove the prices way up. And it it kept people from buying more hardware that they were looking to do for gaming because it was all being used for miners. There's already a bad taste in their mouth. The other piece is people don't want to introduce real world financial aspects into the games when they're explicitly trying to play games to take a break from the real real world. And I totally understand that use case. That's totally valid. So when you look at the GameStop name and who it's familiar with, it's those older generation of gamers who, again, anecdotally, I don't know the data here, but anecdotally, it seems like the older generation of gamers are less open to the idea of NFTs. And now GameStop will have to reach out to this brand new wave of gamers who I think are way more open to the idea of NFTs. They understand the value of them more intuitively. But yet GameStop is almost like the yellow books. Like no one knows what the hell yellow books is anymore because they're not using it. None of the younger generation of gamers has ever been to a GameStop because it was irrelevant by the time they got into the gaming space. So that might be a challenge that they have right now is exactly what you said is how do you effectively market this to the people who are going to resonate with it most? And they might be banking on the idea that this has the GameStop name on it. And yet the audience who's going to resonate the most with the whole idea of a wallet and NFTs and gaming are going to be the ones who don't know shit about GameStop. So that might be a challenge that they run into. But again, I might be totally wrong. I know there's going to be a demographic of people who understand the GameStop name. Could be an awesome on-ramp to get people intrigued and interested in, okay, how do NFTs work within gaming? So it'll be interesting to see how they approach, how they go to market with this and who they reach out to and how they reach out to them and if the market's really going to respond if they do it. That was my last piece or last comment on that one, I'll segue us into a few other last pieces of news. I mentioned this briefly before when talking about how do we leverage the community to be more involved and active in the success and survival of a protocol, right? This is kind of a positive sum game. How do we create a positive sum game and financially incentivize people to care more about the longevity of a protocol based on the principles that are set out? The great example here from Hop Protocol And they put together this kind of Sybil Hunter incentive structure. So what there's this kind of longer form post by Hot Protocol. I'll do a a little high-level overview. It gets into the weeds on how they were trying to themselves, the core team, combat against Sybil attackers because they wanted to do a fair drop similar to what a Juno did. And we'll get to that more in a little bit here. If I just come down this thread here. They define that they got to a certain point where they were manually identifying potential Sybil addresses. And just to take a step back for people who are not familiar with this, the idea of a Sybil attack is that an individual entity or person might be creating multiple different on-chain ed- identities to basically game the system and take more of the total airdrop that's coming out from a hot protocol and then pool that all together and have a larger ownership than was originally intended by the protocol. This can be difficult to identify, right? There's some indicators on chain and they go into those details a little bit on how they themselves were going after those indicators. But then they got an idea at a certain point. I'll I'll read this off. They started to get a bounty together and and push this out to the community to say, we're going to incentivize you guys to actually tell us what our potential Sybil addresses. So 
a quote here, the rules for reporting Sybil addresses are simple. Each report needs to be easy to verify, eliminate at least 20 related addresses, and have negligible chance of eliminating legitimate users. When the DAO is live, we'll make a proposal to reward Sybil hunters with 25% of tokens saved with a one-year lockup. So again, they're rewarding people who believe in the longevity of this protocol with that one year. If you are a Sybil attacker, you can self-report to receive 25% through the proposal or risk receiving nothing if someone reports you first. Since the announcement, we've accepted 32 reports, putting over 900,000 hop back into the hands of the community. It's not priced yet from my uh, understanding, so no idea in total valuation what that is, with no end in sight. So far, Civil Hunters stand to earn 300,000 hop and counting. And it gives a few examples here. This person identified 471 addresses on Arbitrum with a 12-line script. This report turned into an incredible 243,000 hop back to the community and is eligible for an 81,000 hop reward. This other guy identified 97 addresses that had second degree connections with central funding with a central funding address on Polygon returning a certain amount. In another case, this guy was offered a bribe by the civil attacker to take the report down and instead he turned it down and found that additional address associated to the briber's Twitter bio that he added to the report. So I, I love stuff like this because this is a perfect example of how you're almost building a country here and then incentivizing people in a way that drives up loyalty, drives up community engagement, and drives up an army of people who are going to basically market and defend and make the protocol thrive long term. This is exactly the type of positive sum thinking and how can we all win here? And they created incentive structure here to, to reward people like that. And this really isn't that far off from protocols that will reach out to white hat hackers and say, hey, if you identify a certain vulnerability, we'll give you a percentage of the funds that were at risk for that vulnerability. And people have made a ton of money that way. But another creative way to incentivize your community to believe in the success long-term of the protocol. And then now with that one-year lockup, you have all those defenders you can bet for that next year, they're going to be looking out for other vulnerabilities and they're going to be this mercenary group of people that Hop didn't even need to hire. They've just financially incentivized them and it's more of a merit-based reward system. And they're going to be around forever in defending the protocol. And Hop didn't have to do anything else from the inside. So this is the way you unite your community around a goal, turn them into owners and people who have a financial say and financial ownership and success, the long-term success of the protocol versus just users who might have a passing interest. Like that, that's how you build that strength and that loyalty. Yeah, honestly, I think you articulated kind of adds on to the idea of compensating community responsibilities that otherwise could seem unpaid work and then giving people mm -hmm. an incentive to really participate in those systems of community care that make the entire ecosystem stronger. Yeah, it's such a great example. And I want to continue to look out for examples like that. Other great examples for people out there listening, please comment on the Twitter post of this of this episode. Love to look into those different topics and just how do protocols, how do DAOs incentivize their communities and have a kind of shared ownership and shared success, positive sum mindset towards the success of the DAO or the protocol. I have one last bit of news here. This was a big one before we get into the philosophy bombshell, soulbound tokens. So many people might be familiar with this term now, but 
Vitalik co-authored a long research paper. I think it was like 37 pages, something like that. And a lot of people wrote replies to this research. And the whole focus of this research was to say the way Vitalik and the other offers were thinking that the market was really going to was something like a soul-bound token. And it's this idea of proof of achievement and making sure that you can't trade that achievement. So the, the parallel that I immediately thought of, again, coming from the gaming world, is something like a bind on pickup item versus a bind on equipped or a non-binding item. So people who've played MMOs might know immediately what that's like. There's this concept where certain items can only be earned by doing a certain task, doing a dungeon, doing a raid, completing this difficult quest, whatever, and you can only get the item through doing that particular activity. So when you're in the game and you see someone with that item, you immediately know as a player, oh shit, that person just did that particular quest, that raid, whatever, because there's really no other way to get that. It's non-tradable. It's binding as soon as you earn that item. Versus a non-binding item, you don't know if that person did that quest, did that raid, did whatever, because they could have just bought it. They could have done some kind of BS grind for just getting as much cash as possible and then just gone on the auction house or whatever and bought up that item. And it's that the items that are like that, that are non-binding, don't hold as much merit as the ones that are binding. So we're going to go through a lot of different use cases or a couple different use cases here in a second, but really a, a separate use case here that isn't really talked about is there is no way to earn these items other than by accomplishing the task that is necessary to earn that particular token. So it holds a lot more merit. And while it takes away the kind of financialized aspect of that particular token, as opposed to something like an NFT or a POAP that are tradable and could be earned through merit-based ways. Since it is non-transferable, it holds a lot more weight when someone has one of those things. So the few examples that they gave here within the, within the article was something like college degrees. So up until this point, wouldn't really make sense for colleges to issue out diplomas as an NFT because NFTs are transferable. And it would not be a good thing if someone spent four years at a college, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then sold that degree on a secondhand market to someone who didn't actually go to college. That's an obvious clearing problem. Medical records as well. You want those medical records to be directly tied to the human being that it's relative to. There's really no use case to transfer those. Dow governance is another one, an interesting one, right? We don't necessarily want Dow governance to be traded around to the highest buyer. Being eligible, being qualified for governance is not tied to a dollar amount. And we do not, as DAO core teams, we do not want to relinquish or have that kind of vulnerability where if some, if governance is dictated by a certain NFT or a certain threshold of tokens, we don't necessarily want to relinquish that governance to someone who just bought their way into a position to actually have an opinion. You want it to be earned. And the DAO can completely determine how it is that it's earned, but as soon as it's earned, it can be issued now in a soul-bound token or an SBT, and that's non-transferable. And non-transferable with, with air quotations, with an asterisk, because one idea that they talked about in this is the idea of proof of humanity being the final say in, did this person really own this? And there will be instances for DAO governance, for example, where you're going to want to eventually transfer that. If someone's in a governance position and eventually wants to get out of it, or there's a change in ownership, things like that, 
we want to make the barriers to changing that ownership a little bit higher than just throwing a certain dollar value up and going to the highest bidder. You're going to have a certain proof of humanity aspect to say, I can prove that this person owns this. And if I'm going to transfer it, I can say, I'm going to transfer it to this person and they can prove who they are. And here was the merit-based thing that they did in order to earn this governance. We all agree as a DAO in this example that this person should should get this SBT token. And again, the barriers to transferring that are a little bit higher, more visible, and that makes it a little bit stickier and solves some of the problems that we're all seeing with just token-gated membership and token-weighted voting. So it will be very interesting to see how this catches on. And one initial question I had is difference between POAPs, but at the end of the day, yes, POAPs are proof of attendance prizes, and you get them, you earn them by attending certain events, whether they're in person or whether they're community meetings that are remote, whatever it is. But POAPs are transferable and it diminishes the value of that thing where if you say, I have a POAP that says I went to this particular concert. Well, if everyone knows that you could have actually just bought that POAP, you can see that transference of the POAP on the Block Explorer. So there is feasibly a way for POAPs to be earned and if you happen to look at a block explorer and see it was never transferred, then it was like, okay, yes, it was earned by this particular person. But SBTs make it way more feasible to have these kind of non-transferable or difficult to transfer, almost NFTs that are just non-transferable. So it's really interesting. Again, they do an absolute deep dive. I'll post a few links to these kind of synopses of the entire um, article because I know a lot of people are going to read the full 37-page article. But Vitalik, you got to listen to the guy when he talks because he's been a visionary and not only is he predicting the direction that the ecosystem is going to go in, but he plays a very active role. People are listening to him. So it's it's worth it to listen. So again, Julie, we we opened this this call up by saying, I know you're a relatively newer member to Forefront, been in for about five weeks. And we came across this article, member experience is the new user experience. So this is going to be very close to home to you as being a a new member in Forefront and your experience as a new member and, and trying to get your bearings. Where can I fit in? Walk us through how we should be thinking differently in the DAO space and the protocol space about seeing users as members and how we craft an experience for them. Yeah, I can start off by reading a couple of interesting sections from the article. So I wanted to start off with this part right at the beginning. Quote, as success for many Web3 applications, building and engaging a thriving community, I would argue that designing with the member in mind will elevate Web3 design into its own field of expertise and excellence. And he continues, optimizing for member experience refocuses the design challenge on creating a shared digital space for people to do things together. Relational design aims to optimize for peer-to-peer connections and community co-creation, facilitating relational processes that collectively build and redistribute agency. It filters all UX fundamentals through a community lens and rewires traditional single-user incentives and two-way relationships into many value creation dynamics. And I think that this really ties into the theme of this episode so far, which is how do we think about design differently? It's such that we are constructing ecosystems and positive sum games rather than a different system. And I think that this in particular touches on a key part of the community design process, which is designing for people with different levels of crypto experience, including those who know the least 
released technically. So how do we do this in a way that doesn't make them feel inept or they don't belong because they aren't crypto native? And this is definitely a huge challenge when we're thinking about um, mass adoption. So if we think about this in the context of user experience for the internet in the late 90s versus now, it is so much easier for people who don't understand anything technical to participate now in the internet than it was back then. But so far in Web3, we're, a lo- we're really far from achieving this kind of ideal. And as you mentioned earlier, a lot of Web3 technologists are actually designing for people who they assume know this stuff already. And DAOs really also have to think about this in their onboarding process. So I guess I would also touch on my experience. So I am a contributor to Forefront and DreamDAO. And in my experience onboarding both of these, I think one of the main ways to tackle that challenge is really the human aspect. That human aspect was really important talking to multiple people before starting to contribute in both DAOs and seeing how genuinely they were really invested in the community got me also invested in the community because there was this kind of like feedback loop from their energy. And it started building one of the key themes of this article, which is the element of mutuality, where members are really able to trust the intentions and values of the community. And from that human aspect, it made me much more willing to take this risk and venture into this new, very experimental space because I could really feel from the energy that I was getting from my coworkers and who honestly aren't even really like coworkers in the web two sense. My, I don't know the correct word for it, like comrades. Co-contributors almost, maybe. Like, yeah. yeah co-members <laughs> of this like collective. And I could really feel I was co-creating with others in a meaningful way and see the positive feedback look, loop, not only in my own creative process, but where everyone was building off of each other's energy and ideas. So I think it's vastly different from Web2 because when designing in DAOs, rather than thinking about it as trying to mimic a human-to-human interaction through an interface or some other kind of pure form of technology that uses a conversational language or tone to seem more approachable, it's designing for environments that make that approachability inherent in the system. Environments that really incentivize people to support each other and co-create a positive experience with each other. A lot of people have been saying on Twitter, it's not solely a technological problem, it's a people problem. And I think that's really important. What we what we keep talking about here is that technology is the medium. It is not the end goal. It is the way we are getting to the end goal. At the end of the day, we're dealing with people through and through. And that's why it's so important to bring those human-focused concepts, the human-focused design, rather than the technologist design, which has been dominating the space so much, which has been fine and has gotten us so well, I don't want to. I don't want to downplay the technologist focus on the space because it is, it has taken us so far in the space. But the the reality is that and this happened with the internet too. As it gets more and more adoption, the actual user interface, like how the user interacts with the technology, the back end is going to get further and further away and out of people's faces. So whether that's a DAP protocol, whether that's the way DAO members are onboarded, the kind of intricacy of the back end and the unstructuredness and the kind of find your own way, it, it becomes a little bit more handheld and catered and, and easier for the next wave of people to adopt. Because eventually we're going to have to get to the point where your grandmother is able to do a DeFi swap. We are light years <laughs> away from that milestone. And that's the, the way we should be thinking about, are we going in that direction where the UX is becoming cleaner and cleaner, 
the member experience is coming better and better and people feel like they're a part of it. They understand. They don't feel alienated because they haven't been in the space since 2017 and they haven't gone through all these crashes and they don't understand all of the back end and the infrastructure. Like, How do we make it more inclusive for people like that? So I totally agree. For sure. And adding on to that, when we think about relational design, the challenge is so huge because it's not just redesigning a product, it's forming a whole new mental model that totally goes against a lot of the things that we've been conditioned to accept under the current system. So after being in kind of corporate environments and an education system that incentivizes conformity and kind of users being placed in buckets that use a certain product in one certain way for so long, a lot of people need to relearn the idea of intrinsic motivation that DAO work, whether it's as a core contributor or as a community member requires. And I wanted to read another like section of the article. By attracting primarily intrinsically motivated community members who are aligned to the community's ethos and mission, as opposed to purely extrinsically motivated participants, you will be able to use this core team to build and validate your minimum viable community and gradually grow your community by weaving from the inside out. Think of this like an ambassador program where your early adopters will become de facto community leaders by modeling the behavior you want in the community. And I think that this is also important as a form of education, of unlearning and relearning and getting people onboarded into this Mm -hmm. space. In the absence of conditioning on how to think this way, to think like independently almost, the community itself can serve in that mentor role, like collectively, by creating an environment where it's safe for people to be original, to take up space and become comfortable with proposing new ideas and initiating new projects, even if they may eventually get shot down or fail without feeling like they're putting their livelihood or their spot in the community at risk. I really like this concept. It comes right back to the DAO leadership section we did at the beginning of this call, where the the education, the training that we've gotten up to this point is literally designed for the industrial revolution. How can we get as many bodies in here? How can we teach them to be obedient, to be reliable, and to throw them into a factory so that they can take clear direction, complete the task, and report back and take more direction? And we're far away from that very hardcore world, but the reality is the education really has stayed in that way of how do you be obedient? How do you stay in line? How can you be reliable? You're basically training to be an individual contributor. You're not training to think like an entrepreneur, to think like a leader. And the DAO space, I think this is going to be a challenge for a little while here where as people come in, immediately they're like, what should I do? What should I do? That's the biggest thing, the biggest problem. I think a lot of new DAO contributors come in and they're like, and they're basically said, hey, figure out what the needs are of the DAO and then make a proposal and then own that project. And that's super daunting for a lot of people coming in because that is so different from the way we're used to operating at the company level, right? You're coming in and you think people have a clear vision for what needs to be done. You're handed work. You get very clear about how they want that work done. You complete it. You report back to them. You get a nice pat on the back or you get some feedback direction and you move on to the next task. That is so different from the way DAOs work and from this kind of idea of decentralized leadership where everyone is a leader in different ways and they might specialize in different ways. And if they're coming to the table thinking more about How can I identify problems for myself? What am I uniquely positioned to solve for? What am I uniquely positioned to identify problems in? And how can I make a case to the DAO and lead an initiative where other people are helping me? And 
you're going to have that fluidity between being an individual contributor and taking direction and then actually being a leader on different projects. Such a different way to operate. And the way that we've been taught up until this point is very hardcore on the individual contributor way. And it's only through years and years and years of working that you work up the kind of title clout that gives you the actual authority to be a leader rather than right off the bat, you basically identify a problem, you get buy-in from the DAO and you're uniquely positioned to actually lead that project, whether it's people, whether it's the tasks, whether it's just yourself to complete that task. It's just a totally different way of working and so many different instances of this happening within DAOs is this kind of self-governance and more entrepreneurial mindset rather than the individual contributor take directions and run with it type of mindset. Definitely. And I think that in my own experience in Dream DAO and Forefront, I've been really grateful for people, especially since I've joined this space. And my only previous work experience was as an intern, where you're conditioned to, you're not really the one making the decision. Yeah. It's always your manager who's the one making the end decision. So suddenly, after these experiences, I'm just thrust into this position where finally, I have agency to do my own projects and participate in this way. And I think that one thing that was really helpful was on Honestly, just positive feedback from Jihad and the Forefront community who have really built up my confidence and made it so I'm comfortable thinking in this way. And I think a lot of people who are coming into DAOs from Web2, where they weren't the ones who really had many of them, there's leaders who are coming in as well. But many of them are so used to this hierarchical chain where they weren't the ones who had the end decision. Mm -hmm. That kind of empowering people through the community aspect in this way is super important. But then there also arises a final tension I wanted to touch on in this article, which is between kind of community architecture and curation and gatekeeping. So in the final quote, I wanted to bring up, he says, in designing for member experience, it's also important not to treat all members equally, which kind of seems antithetical to what we were talking mm-hmm. about before. Beyond the core team and active contributors, there is likely to be a majority of more passive members as well. Even if their role is lighter and less persistent, it's important to think about the minimum requirements or expectations any community member would need to live up to. And uh, he concludes with the fact that um, member experience design will ultimately result in a layered experience with a mix of different types of engagement among different members. So I think that it's important to acknowledge in this conversation that not every community is going to be right for everyone and forcing a community to be accessible and open to all in terms of like contributor onboarding, I think will lead to it not being right for anyone because it's there's this curation and specificity that is required in an effective community. But on the flip side, I think every community should be accessible to kind of explore, but not necessarily join. So people can look at the content and content and interact with the community. And it's open to those types of explorers to see if it's right for them. But then not everyone might end up making that jump. And it's okay. There shouldn't be that pressure that every community you have to contribute to. And I think with this new poly DAO culture, where if you look on Twitter and you look at all the people in this space, everyone has three different organizations in their Twitter bio. So I think that kind of um, making this a part of like our culture as a space is really um, important. Yeah, that's such a good point. This is a perfect example of where soulbound tokens could be used because people need to hit certain thresholds. They need to accomplish certain things. We're not going to treat every single community member equal because certain community members might be contributing more and have more of an interest, whether that's financial or long-term and intrinsic, uh, to the success of the DAO. 
Perfect example, soulbound tokens. When you hit certain thresholds, this is what you need to do. When you hit that threshold, you get a non-transferable token that says you get to this next tier and you get certain access, you get certain governance rights, et cetera, et cetera. So perfect example where th this could be used to make things better for this kind of uh, tiered approach and earning your way and, and your right to do more, to have more responsibility in the DAO. Definitely. And I think that this also ties to a broader trend of digital identity in this space, mm -hmm. where one of the value adds of crypto-based communities is the idea of returning agency to people instead of viewing them as, again, disembodied users. And I think that one major change is the idea of movement that wasn't necessarily designed for in Web 2 all, all the time. So instead of pinning someone's identity to a fixed point on a grid in order to like understand their positionality and design for a prescribed set of needs for that different identity. Instead, with member experience, we're almost designing for movement between identities. So we have to look past just a given set of personas because the typical approach of designing for the lowest common denominator is not conducive to building a complex ecosystem, nor does it allow people room to truly experiment with their skills and grow even within communities from when they first join to the fullest extent that they can. And people are going to change. And I feel Web2 didn't really accommodate for this idea that people's identities are fluid and change constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they change, they have different needs that need to, in turn, be accommodated in approaching this new, fundamentally different type of design. Allowing for that level of flexibility is really important so that we can think about this space as an ecosystem and not necessarily and industry. So complexity in terms of sub-communities and subgroups is what makes DAOs worthwhile per to participate in. But making that, com that complexity easier to navigate is key. So yeah, that's what I wanted to leave off with. I love this concept. Just taking a step back, it, UX, when it comes to dApps and protocols, such a hot topic right now because like we mentioned before, a lot of it is designed by people who've been deep in the space, are technologists, and are designing for other technologists. And when you think about the next wave of people coming in, they're just a totally separate audience. So how can we continue to get the back end further and further separated from the user experience? And as we get more people coming from the traditional Web2 world, product managers, UX designers, people like that, this is the way to think. And, and, and the extension here from this article is don't just think of them as users. They are actually members. They are part of your community. They have shared interests in the success of the DAP, of the protocol, of the DAO. And you, you think of to the role of a, a product manager, UX designer, a lot of the feedback that you'll get from users, is, think of the app store, right? One star, couldn't log in today whoa, buddy, okay. And if you look into their usage, they could have been using that thing for six months. They could have been a power user. And yet one day they, they can't log in and you get a one star. They have no shared interest in the total success of the app. They just have their own self-interest and that I just need the app to work for myself. And I'm just going to put a signal out there to get people to react and actually fix this problem. Whereas if you have a particular member, you're probably going to have a more cordial in interaction with that member versus a particular user that has no shared interest in the success of that app or protocol. And they're going to say something more along the lines of, hey, I noticed this particular problem. I think this would actually be better. I think this would help out a lot of other people. This is a problem I've been hearing about a lot. Feel free to take this feedback or not. Now you have met the difference with members and users is members feel like they have a shared ownership of the success 
of the protocol, DAP, DAO, whatever else. And you're going to have a totally different relationship with them. And we have to start getting to the point where when we're designing these things, these environments, the DAPs, protocols, that we're keeping the member in mind and the focal point here. From a typical Web2 example here, Jeff Bezos, totally customer obsessed. And there are going to be pros and cons to that, right? There's a middle ground. But there's no doubt that his company was successful in a financial way, that they were very customer obsessed. Maybe we should start pivoting and thinking about how can we be member obsessed? How can we be listening to our members who are also users? And from both an improvement of the ecosystem of the DAP, where you need to be listening to them because they are the actual users of this particular application. But we also, from a community standpoint, we want them to know that they're heard, that they have an opinion, that their opinion is being listened to and and it's changing the direction of the DAP, you're going to do something similar to what Hot Protocol is doing where you're enlisting the community to help out in the development and direction of that ecosystem or DAP or whatever, that they are going to be way more bought in to the success of that. Not only do they have their own financial self-interest, but then now they have this kind of psychological interest because they're a participant, they're an active member in the community and the success of that tool as opposed to a passive user who just sits there and shows shares feedback and does a fingers crossed type of thing that it actually gets listened to and the app is is more conducive to the way that they're going to be op- be able to operate. Co- a concept that's totally close to my heart, really good overview. Thank you for sharing your own experiences as a, a recently onboarded member to Forefront because this is something that we're constantly trying to think of as we bring new people in. How do we listen to them? How do we improve that experience? How do we adapt the experience over time as the demographic of people coming in changes. That's all we had for you today. As always, please do comment on the post in Twitter for this episode. If you have any feedback, if you liked some of the stuff that we talked about, if you want to go in a separate direction, I think we're starting to find our niche here in overlapping and talking about topics that aren't directly related always to explicitly Web3, but involve a lot of the more human aspects that are talked about and covered in lots of other adjacent subject areas. And we talk about ecology, we talk about psychology, economics, like all these different things that at the end of the day, technology is the medium. It is not the end goal. It is just enabling us as human beings to coordinate in different ways. And the human being always has to be the focal point when we think about designing a new internet structure that's going to be more egalitarian and include a lot more people that are really excluded and the way the, the internet is designed today. So that's going to be the focus for the foreseeable future. If you have any other specific topics you want us to cover, please comment on the Twitter post. But other than that, Julia, it was awesome to have you. Really good coverage today. And I think we'll be going back to our, our normal host, Caroline. But it's awesome to know that we have a really solid participant here t- at the Forefront crew. Really another podcast expert here. So thank you again for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Have a good one, Forefront fam. We'll see you on the next one. Hey fam, thanks for listening to the Forefront podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So please visit us on Twitter at Forefront underscore or on the web at Forefront.market. You can come through our Discord too, anytime, night or day. We'll see you next time.